For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, as we look into this text today, May we be able to see the glories of the cross, the horror of our sin, the terror of holiness that we have been spared from. And I ask, Lord, that it would make a profound impact upon our thought processes and how we live our life in anticipation of the day of Your return. And Lord, may we be not feeling shame when you return, but may we have great joy and excitement at your return. In your name we pray, amen. A year ago, I can hardly believe it's been about a year, but a year ago, the state of New York and Pennsylvania implemented policies to bring people who were not well and put them into nursing homes. And the result of that was that COVID was passed to the vulnerable and to the weak. And we're just now learning that Governor Cuomo deliberately underreported the number of lives that were lost in his state. You might say that what was hidden is now becoming visible. Now, this is not intended to be a political commentary. Rather, it's an illustration I'm using this morning of the word apocalypse. The word apocalypse means to uncover, to reveal. Apo means to, a, to undo. Apo from apocalypse. Calypse means to cover. So we put them together. It has the idea of removal, of, of revealing. And the exposure of this cover-up has created, if you will, an apocalyptic problem for Cuomo. And I use that as a pun on purpose. It has created a 
detriment to his political future. And so we actually tend to associate the word apocalypse with the end of the world. And in a sense, Cuomo's uh, future is coming maybe to an end and uh, revelation that many more people died than what he had initially reported. So by suppressing the truth, Cuomo tried to create a false world. He tried to create a world that was not true, but yet he couldn't hold it all together, and the world he had created started to collapse, and the true truth was being revealed. You know, last Sunday I did talk about Ravi Zacharias and the world that he tried to create. And at the close of his life, the real Ravi was made known. How does this happen? How is it that we create these worlds that eventually are going to collapse anyway? Well, for Ravi, I suspect that it was, as we would all have been guilty of at one time or another, was the suppression of truth. But there was something he desired more. He desired more the success. He desired more the comfort, the pleasure that this deceitful world had created for him. And we do this because sin always promises us much reward that it cannot actually bring to pass. And those who are deceived by this temptation are a lot like Esau, who we discussed in the previous section. Esau wanted gratification, and because that was his primary objective, he failed to obtain the grace of God. You see, sin is sinister, sin tempts, it blinds us, and then it kills us. It destroys us in the end. You know, people can sense the the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and over time, um, they understand that their sin is going to cause them ruin, but they reject the gospel of grace. They, They They don't like the taste of what will be required of them to reveal, to kind of let go of sin. And so I mentioned the analogy last Sunday of the spicy hard candy. You know, they put it in their mouth and they they kind of like the idea of grace. They like this idea that, that I can be free. But then when they come right down to it, they don't like the taste. It's gritty. The texture in their mouth is not what they were thinking. And they spit it out. Why didn't Ravi admit his sin? Think about the humiliation that would have been required and the loss of revenue, the loss of everything. All of that was costly. Sin blinded him to the reality, though, of God's holiness, which is even greater and even more costly. See, sin is a horrifying power, it tempts us, it blinds us, and then it will kill us. When it, is, when it is revealed, we begin to see the true state of our inner nature and of the holiness of God. You see, the gospel that is frequently heard and frequently spurned becomes tepid, it becomes old, it becomes stale, but it is no less real. Cuomo could have admitted his error. He could have admitted his error in judgment at any point in the the process. But instead, 
he suppressed the truth and he was blinded by his desires for success and power. The holiness of God is no less real even if we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the book of Hebrews is talking to us about the radiance of the Son of God that exists even though we can't see it at the moment, that it's all around us, even though there may be a veil right now between us and eternity, the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of the image of God's nature is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God on high. It is rating out the holiness. And as we come to the end of this book, there is now a, a need to come to reckoning with the majesty of God and make it impactful into our hearts and lives so that we live out that reality. You see, Jesus the, is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We often forget that Jesus is also the Lion who will judge the sins of the world. And there is a revelation coming, there is a revealing coming in which Jesus Christ will be seen as the judge who judges the whole world. And so I'm going to try to develop this morning in this text what I believe is the central idea, and I'm using this metaphor of the lamb and the lion to help us see what the writer is doing. And I believe that the big idea here is, is that the lamb's voice may truly be ignored today, but not tomorrow. None will escape the rending of reality when the lion roars. Have you ever seen a book with overlays? Maybe a book about the human anatomy? We have had several of those in our house as uh, we've done homeschooling and had different uh, things that we wanted to show our children. But overlays, you know, you take the, the, the upper layer has the skin, right? and you peel back a layer, and then you see the muscles. Peel back the muscle layer, and then you see the, you see the um, organs, and you might even get so fine and see all the different systems that work underneath of our, their skin. And then you get down to the bones, right? There's different layers. And the writer here is talking about different layers of reality. And he talks to us first in verses 18 to 20 about the gospel overlay that's resting over top of the holiness of God. In verse 18, notice, he says, For you have not come to that which may be touched. In verse 22, he says, But you have come to something else. They're both realities, and he describes two mountains, and he kind of layers them one over top of the other. You have Mount Sinai in the background, and you have Zion in the foreground as layers. And so, because of the blood of Christ, we, we don't come to the Sinai layer, we come to the, we come to the Zion layer. And that's what we hear. We hear the soft tones of the Lamb. We don't hear the hard tones and trumpet blasts of Mount Sinai and the articulation of God's dangerous holiness. So we're going to look this morning 
and, and work through these verses. In verse 18 to 20, we're going to look underneath that gospel layer for a moment and, and see how that the holiness of Sinai is no less real for us or the world. The holiness of God is very real. And let us look at verse 19, verse 18 and 19. It talks about the, the he basically summarized what we read in Exodus, but I think it would be helpful for us to read what is in Exodus. Put your hand in your Bible here and then go back with me to Exodus 19, please. Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, verse 16, we read this, that on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of the kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish." Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, this was a terrifying moment. It was very impressionable on the people as they were sitting there hearing the sound and escalation of noise. When God was speaking, it, it came across not as words, but as a loud blare of a trumpet. Moses is recorded in Hebrews, and you can turn back to Hebrews, trembled himself at the voice of God coming from the mountain. And so Moses commanded a perimeter, as we saw in Exodus 19, so that no careless person might enter into the precinct. Animals, if they were to even come near, they were to be stoned. On the one hand, this threat was intended to protect them from God's holiness, but you know what it was also intended to do? It was intended to point out their inherent sinfulness. Humanity is intensely sinful and cannot stand in the presence of God. And God's voice was like thunder, and it grew louder and louder. And people begged, I don't want to hear anymore. And they put their hands over their ears and they, they, they cried out and said, Moses, we can't take it anymore. God's holiness is too much for sinners to bear. We could all think of times when we've covered our ears, when we've been in large groups, where we've been in large, uh, very loud situations. Think about some of the most unbearable sounds that you've experienced. Have you... Car alarms are pretty, pretty loud, aren't they? Heavy construction 
can be really loud. Screaming kids can be even louder, right? That's about 40 to 80 hertz of sound. That's about what we would say is very uncomfortable. But you know, there is another form of anxiety that occurs when we hear how holy God is and how sinful we are. When sinners are told that they are depraved and morally unable to stand in God's presence, there's often an unconscious and visceral turning away. And when we turn away, we cover our ears, and we don't want to be told that we are sinners. It's an unnecessary annoyance. I don't want to be told that my sin will take me to hell. And you know, we've lost the visual reminders of the dangerousness of God's holiness in our society. God's holiness is dangerous for sinners. You can't take your own lamb into the presence of God. You need a priest to take it in for you. If you go in there, if you go into the Holy of Holies and you look upon the glory radiating out from the Ark of the Covenant, you won't make it out again. During the Middle Ages, the Roman church tried to impress upon the masses of people the holiness of God by creating cathedrals, didn't they? Large cathedrals with stained glass, and they even put a tabernacle at the front of the auditorium to try to let you know you couldn't go into that inner area. Now, of course, their theology was off, but I believe what they were intending to do was try to encourage people to recognize their sinfulness. But, you know, human nature is so that not only do we kind of tune out the sounds that annoy us, familiarity also can be tuned out as well. Bolted ceilings, flying buttresses, statues, the martyrs, they're majestic, but you know what they are? They're constraints, they're constructions of the human hand. They're all things that we have made. God's holiness is not something that can be replicated by the human hand. And the sense of God's holiness is not something that can be communicated by art. It can only be communicated by the Holy Spirit, who Himself is holy. And if your soul feels dry and it feels weary, don't necessarily look to art and externals or icons or images to bring you back to a sense of awareness. Call out to the immaterial one. Call out to God, the Holy Spirit, to impress upon your heart the holiness of God. That's where real conviction and the, the awareness of the residual sin can be seen. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about the holiness of God as a layer, and we... we, we 
we don't often look that deeply. We kind of often stop short. We, we look at the gospel layer, and that's an important place for us. It's a blessing for us to be able to look at the gospel layer. Because when we come to the mountain, we don't come to Sinai. We come to a different mountain. We have the upper layer of Mount Zion before us. Verse 22 to 23. There's a beautiful picture here. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We're in a new place. And I, I think we should just pause for a moment and think about the imagery that, that's in this text, because he's writing to a different audience. We don't, we, don't, we don't open up our doors and walk out and see Jerusalem on a regular basis. And so, what he's communicating here is just how beautiful and how invigorating walking into the capital city was for a Jewish person. Jerusalem is today strategically placed, it was historically strategically placed on a mountain with two ravine valleys, and at the southern tip, as you would approach the city and the, town, and the city on that hill, it was immensely tall. It was very tall. You, you walk up to that side of the, the mountain, approaching the city, you'd feel like this big in a room this large. And as you approached um, the mountain range there, several mountains would little pop, and the front mountain that you would come to was Mount Zion. And the city wall was, was around the perimeter. And especially if you came up from Bethlehem in the south, a Jewish person traveling on foot, as the city opened up before them, their heart would have just risen with patriotic pride. This is the city that David built. Now, when any of us go down to Washington before there was this sheet metal in, in, the, in the mall and it was a free access to the Capitol, we could start at the Lincoln Memorial and walk right up to the Capitol and the Capitol would get larger and larger and larger, right? Have you had that experience? It looks so small when you're over, but when you get closer, it's so immense and your heart just like, wow, this is amazing. And so he's trying to encourage to Take this image that you've seen. You've seen this. You've, you've traveled down to Passover. You've traveled to the festivals. You've seen Jerusalem rising up as beautiful. Think about the, the, the walled city. But now, imagine the heavenly city. Angels around the wall in festal gathering and crying out, Hosanna! Glory to God in the highest! Now, there's a perimeter there, but now you're not kept out of the perimeter. You can go into the city. You can go in and enjoy fellowship with the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn. You have rights to go in there. Not like today, we don't have rights to enter into the capital area. We have rights because the Spirit of God is in our hearts and allows us free access to the throne room of God. We've come to a community of faith. We're brought into relationship with believers throughout the ages, and verse uh, 23 seems to indicate as well. The universal church spans generation after generation. And as beautiful as that is, 
<laughs> this all pales. And the climax of this is that we get to see Jesus. We see Jesus face to face. Oh, the joy that will be ours when we see Jesus face to face. And when we think of God, we don't think in terms of abstraction like the Jewish people would have. They had to have a tabernacle to help them visualize the holiness of God and the, the mercy of God. We don't think in those terms when we think about God, do we? We think of, in terms of a person. We think of Jesus. That is a beautiful thing that we have. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is 1 Peter 1.8, which says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is a provision for us because of the Holy Spirit. The difference between a person who, who looks at Jesus as simply a good man and someone who sees Him as a Savior is a difference of the Holy Spirit that illuminates and makes that relationship real. We see Jesus as the wrappings of God in the flesh. When I was a young man, younger man, and single, I often, I often wondered who would, who would love me? I mean, who would be willing to marry me? I can be really goofy at times, and my kids are annoyed often at my comments. And I used to carry my violin case around campus, and I was pretty nerdy. And if I can find a wife, then there's hope for everyone. When I began to date Abby, I was profoundly affected with the realization that someone actually loved me. I know that's very self-centered. But the effect of that love actually brought joy. It brought stability. It brought peace. And when sinners say, I do, of course, this love is tested in trial. Will love for one another mature? Will it blossom? Will it endure? Will the devotion still reside in one's heart and life for the other? Will I remain consecrated to her or to him? I submit that that's the festal joy that we experience in our individual personal lives based on the relationship with one another, but it is a greater picture of the festal joy that we experience when there's nothing between us and our Savior, and we realize that our Savior loves us and is committed to us and will not ever let us go. That is a beautiful, joyful experience that's a product of the gospel. That's the gospel overlay in a picture of marriage. You see, the good news, which is overlaid on top of the holiness of God, does not diminish the holiness of God, though. God's Son is speaking to us at this time in gentle tones 
tones which we can hear, which we can tolerate. The voice of the Lamb is calling, and in verse 24, we see Jesus described as the mediator of a new covenant. In verse 24, we see in Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, this is who we've come to, to the one who sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. The new covenant is ratified between us and God by the blood of Jesus and not by our blood. See, a mediator steps in. The holiness of God divides us and separates us. And to be reunited, blood has to be shed. It would have been our blood involuntarily. Why does the author say that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of Abel? Because the death of Abel was not voluntary. It was involuntary, taken by Cain. The death of Christ was voluntary. Christ died voluntarily to demonstrate not anger at us, but love for us. You know, very few people will willingly give their life for another. There might be a story that we've heard at one time of a ship going down, and an older person might have given up their life to make sure that a younger child would have a life vest to be able to float to the surface. There might be some stories, and we've seen honorable things like that. Those things are remarkable. But Jesus' blood was shed voluntarily for Cain's, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for the, for the ones that will be potentially kept from the new city. See, the author of Hebrews here is trying to get you to, I, to realize and appreciate the gospel message by visualizing the holiness of God that would keep us out of the new city and appreciate the blood of Jesus Christ which brings us into the new city. If we refuse the, the better word that speaks through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we'll be left with the blood of Jesus on our hands if we refuse it. When the lamb comes, the profane and the ungodly, like Esau, will hear the lion roar, and it will be too late. The unveiling and the apocalypse is coming. Don't let the gospel overlay fool you to the holiness of God and His coming again. And so, the author here is urgent. He's warning us, and he's saying to us, we cannot get cozy and content and think that the lion will not roar. We like the gentle lamb, but we need to know that the lamb will one day roar. And so, verse 25, we read this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. If you can refuse to hear someone who's speaking in normal tones, what will happen when the volume is turned up? It will be impossible to escape the roar. You know, when John the Baptist was preaching, he was preparing the way of the Lord. He talked about one who would come after him, who would baptize with the Spirit and also with fire. This is what he said in Matthew 3. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Have you ever stood near a raging fire? Like, I burn stuff, and I've burned some things that I probably should never have attempted to burn in my life, such as an eight-foot couch with all kinds of poly on it. It became an inferno. And you know what an inferno does, a fire does? It starts to suck the air around it, and it becomes louder and louder. And an inferno is an intensity. And this is the Jesus that many, many people don't realize exists. There's coming a day when the sweet lamb of glory will become a lion to those who refuse to hear his voice now. In verse 26, we have a comparison of a lesser to a greater, referring to a time in the past where God's voice spoke on the mountain and there was trembling. And he asked, well, if those people couldn't endure it, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth but now, as he promised, gents, more, once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This is not going to be a localized shaking of the world. This is going to be a universal shaking that rends all the elements and breaks them into pieces. It's talking about the rending of all reality. Verse 27, let me continue on. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus will rend reality with the fire of His holiness. What we're talking here is about the quaking of the universe. You know, so many sci-fi plot lines talk about fourth dimension and talk about alternative, that like people can wave their hands and there's something that they're behind what we see. People don't just get that out of their ears. People can think of these things because they exist. There is an unseen reality that exists behind everything that we experience in our lives. 
God is everywhere at all times. So when the lion roars, the eternal purposes and plans of God will be established on the earth and sins will finally be judged. Now, I'm not developing a full doctrine of the end return of Christ here, obviously. I'm talking about how this text is thinking. He's talking the imminency in which there will be no other opportunity to respond to the gentle voice and vibration of the Lamb. The revelation of Jesus Christ is coming. And the warning here is for believers and unbelievers alike. It's not just for the unbelievers, it's also for the believers. There's an encouragement here. He says, you know, he's telling us this, but you know what? He starts out in verse... uh, Verse 18, he says, but you have not come to that which may be touched. This is not what you've come to. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The holiness of God is no less real. But because of the blood of Jesus, you come to a better place. Live as people of that better place. In the last verse here, I believe, last couple verses, he's saying that those who have true faith will worship God with a mix of joy and reverence for Him. It will profoundly affect the way you live. It will profoundly affect your worship of life. We began this section in Hebrews 11 with the definition of faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Are you convicted that there is an unseen reality that exists behind everything that we see now? Are you convicted that God is omnipresent? Do you believe that He has the power to rend reality by simply speaking? How much then should that affect our Christian walk with the Lord? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we don't see God as a consuming fire in this moment. We know it with our heads, but with the spiritual eyes within our souls, do we see Him for who He is? And the author here is saying to us, it should fill us with gratitude, it should fill us with reverence and awe. Our whole lives should be characterized as worship for God and under God. The character of God demands that we honor Him as He is truly holy. Now, as sinners, we can be profoundly thankful that God chose not to destroy us in a moment. Why He doesn't destroy us in a moment is a mystery. We need to be eternally thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ which was shed for us. That's how we escape the eternal burn of fire. 
Our response to God should be one of reverence for His immense and limitless power. But it also should be joy as well. We ought to be grateful and thankful. I'm going to close with this illustration that comes from the children's book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful way of capturing truth in story form. Jesus is represented in the book as a lion, and his name is Aslan. And when in Narnia the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they have a discussion about who this Aslan would be that they might potentially meet. And Lucy says to Mrs. Beaver, is he, is he a man, this Aslan? Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake about it, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe. Our God is a consuming fire, but He is good. He is good because He made a way that you could stand in His presence without being consumed. And He loves you, and He sent His Son for you, and His Son is coming again for you. And there will be a revealing all that we see will be peeled back and the real spiritual universe will be exposed. The Lamb's voice may be ignored today, but not tomorrow. None will escape the rending of reality when the lion roars. And Peter said this in another place. He said, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. This is our challenge, but we have a good God who gives us a provision of the Holy Spirit to live holy lives before Him.